you take your Bibles, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you're not already there. Reading the first three verses, Paul writes this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you, same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Grief and worry and anxiety are common experiences in life. We all face those moments and those times when circumstances overwhelm us and we don't have the the faintest idea what to do during that time. Fear can take over. Um, anxiety can take over. When, when fear and grief and worry and anxiety remain in place, when they don't move on, when we're not able to, to deal with them, then they start to deplete us. It's almost as though we, we've got a certain amount of, of reserve. Some have, have more, some perhaps have less. We deal with enough stuff on a, on a regular basis that we can get through most of what's there. But when it just kind of stays stuck, it's like it leaves the drain open and we lose joy, we lose vitality. Now, Paul is dealing with the Philippians and they're a church who has experienced this. They've had plenty of reason for worry and anxiety. They, they were worried about Paul's circumstances. He was imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. They were worried because they thought Paul's life was about to end. They were worried that Paul's absence and death would, would effectively bring an end to the gospel. They certainly knew that there were other apostles, that there were other people out there, but their experience had been with this man, and, and he was really unique in what he did. There really weren't a lot of others moving through the area. And they thought, now with Paul in prison, the gospel has been hindered. And if Paul dies, I guess it just all kinds of, kind of stops. They were worried about Epaphroditus' illness. That Epaphroditus was one of their own that they had sent to Paul with a letter and with a gift. And they learned that uh, either on the road or after he arrived in Rome, he became deathly, deathly ill. And that threw them into a panic too. So Paul has already assured them. We've seen in the first two chapters, Paul says he's fine. Whether he lives or dies doesn't ultimately matter. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He says the gospel is fine. Even in his imprisonment, it's not only remained the same, it's actually advancing because of his imprisonment. Epaphroditus has recovered from his illness by the grace of God, and they have Epaphroditus with them then. Timothy's going to be coming to them soon, and Paul says, I expect to follow too as soon as I see how it goes with me. Well, this is the world in which we live. It's, it's a world where there are challenges and there are disappointments and there are struggles. It's not a perfect world. It's not a fair world. It is not a predictable world. It is the world in which God is at work. It is the world that he has permitted it is the the world in which god saves sinners manifests his glory in nature and is preparing a people for his name and it is the world over which jesus christ reigns as lord even now and in which he is working constantly as savior so 
the bad is true, the good is true, the wonderful is true. And the answer that we see here in these these few verses just getting started in Philippians 3 is that the answer for discouragement and anxiety is to fix our eyes on Christ. Not to be focused on our circumstances, but to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You have every reason to be concerned and anxious about this world, but you have far greater reason for joy because of who Jesus is. Now, Paul isn't telling us or them to just blind ourselves to the realities of the world. That's practiced uh, quite, a, quite often in our world as we know. People stick their heads in the sand and they refuse to acknowledge what's going on. I, frankly, I think that the prosperity movement, the faith movement, is, is basically that tendency. We refuse to acknowledge what's bad. We refuse to acknowledge what's difficult or what's painful. We're just going to pretend in Jesus' name that it doesn't exist. But being in Christ, having our seat, feet settled uh, having our feet settled in the gospel, in our relationship with Christ, not only allows us to rejoice, it allows us to rejoice while we acknowledge the dark realities around us and the pain that's around us. That's because we trust and we know that God is going to prevail over every circumstance just as he is willed. And that the peace that we have in the Lord because of the grace of God will never be taken away from us. Now, I think that Paul gives us, in in these first couple of verses then, uh, a couple of clues. I hate the word secrets. A couple of secrets to rejoicing in the Lord. I I heard a a guy say one time, uh, actually Alistair Begg, preacher, he said one time, there is no secret to a faithful life in Christ. And he's a Scot. He said, actually, there is. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. There's, There's no secret. But there are truths that we need to pay attention to. Let me point out the two that I, that I see here. First of all, we've got to stay grounded. We've got to stay grounded. He says in verse 1, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. To write the same things that you've already heard. The same things that I told you while I was with you. The same things that I perhaps have written to you in letters that that we don't have in Scripture, the same things. Now, this doesn't mean that we focus our attention always only on the basic elements of the faith. We're not supposed to do that. We've got to continue to grow in our, in our knowledge of the Word of God, in our depth of knowledge in the Word of God. That deepens our understanding of the grace of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, who we are in Christ, uh, who we are becoming in Christ by his will. But while we do that, we don't abandon the foundational truths. We don't move away from the basics of the gospel just because we've heard them a few times, just because they're familiar to us. Uh, Wednesday night at our, at our Bible study in Creighton, we spent an hour going over John 3.16. John 3.16 is, is probably the, the best known verse of the Bible. It's probably the most commonly memorized verse of the Bible. But when you actually dive into it and look at the context, there is a wealth of, of, of spiritual truth and riches that come out of that verse and out of the verses that surround it. If we will stop and take a look, we keep going back to those 
foundational things. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 15, as he's writing toward the end of his life to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. By this point, Paul had been a Christian for 25 or 30 years, perhaps 40 years. He'd been an apostle for much of that time. He's, He's written half of the New Testament. He has proclaimed gospel in, uh, in, on three different continents. He's proclaimed the gospel before kings and before rulers. He's suffered enormously, but he's seen Jesus save the people that everyone else would say are absolutely unsavable. He understands the, the depths and the hidden things better than any other person ever has. He acknowledges in 2 Corinthians that he had been caught up in the Spirit of God to heaven. And that he saw things that he was not permitted to write about. That he's not permitted to talk about. And yet at the end of his life, what he says to Timothy is, here's the most foundational thing I can tell you. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the chief of sinners. There was a German pastor and theologian named Karl Barth, born in the late 1800s, died in in the late 1960s. He, He wrote vast numbers of books and preached numerous, numerous sermons. And he fought during a time when German liberal religion was taking over. He fought and did everything that he could to resist the tide of liberalism and to stay focused on the truth of Scripture and the essentials of the gospel. When he visited the United States once, one and only time in the early 1960s, he was asked in an interview, with all of the books that you've written, with all the sermons that you've preached, with the millions of words that have come out from your pen, how would you summarize Christian truth? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. See, he was a man who never grew beyond the, the, the need for the foundation. I don't know anything close to what Paul knew, nothing close to what Karl Barth knew. I I could not begin to have a ministry as widespread as theirs and maybe as significant as theirs. But I know this, and it's the sweetest truth I know. Jesus Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. With John Newton, who at the end of his life dealing with blindness, dealing with dying health. He was on his deathbed, visited by a a young pastor friend. He said to that man, I remember two things. I remember that that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Now we get tired. We get weary. We get discouraged that there doesn't seem to be much progress. We labor and we pray and we study and we share the gospel and it seems much of the time that there's absolutely no change. It's like the Chronicles of Narnia. It's always winter, never Christmas. It just never seems to make any difference. This is why we've got to stay in the word. This is why we've got to stay rooted in the foundational truths of the gospel continue to read the Bible, study the Bible, be men and women of prayer, and to realize that 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would never perish, but have everlasting life. And he is saving people with the same power that he saved in the early church. He is still reaching out to those who are dead in sin and lost in sin and exerting his power and his mercy and his his gracious love over them. And although this road seems long, although this life seems long, one day it will seem brief indeed, the twinkling of an eye. And when we stand before him in eternity, we will understand how quick it went. And perhaps at times how silly we were to lose hope. Let's hang on to our hope. That's one way to rejoice in the Lord is to stay focused on those foundational things. The second thing that we can do and that we must do, I believe, is we must recognize that there is a difference between those of us who know the Lord and those who don't. We are distinct from the world. We possess a unique and privileged relationship with our creator. And so Paul says in verses two and three, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now we're not supposed to talk this way. We're not supposed to talk like there's a difference. We're not supposed to say that there are people who are in, in a, in a better position than others. We're not supposed to uh, insist that many stand condemned by their sin and rebellion. And that really just a few, comparatively, according to the Lord Jesus, will ever have a right relationship with their God. He said, the road to destruction is broad and there are many people on it. The road to life is narrow and there are few people on that. That seems pretty clear that in terms of relative numbers there will never be as many christians as there are non-christians but we're not supposed to talk about that the truth is that there are those in this world in here who are saved by grace through faith because of the finished work of jesus christ on the cross and that the majority of the people in our world are unsaved and dead in their sins that is simply the truth And among that large group of those who are unsaved are those who think they're saved, who claim to be Christians, who claim to have a relationship with God, uh, or who, who cite other religious beliefs. And you're no longer even allowed to say, well, being a Christian is a different kind of thing. You're only really acceptable as a Christian if you deny Christ and say there are many ways to God. You're only acceptable as a person of the Bible if you deny that the Bible is a a uniquely inspired, authoritative, powerful book. Paul's description in verse 2 doesn't apply to all non-believers during his time. It applied to a specific group, but it's, it's, it's important for us to understand. It's as though Paul says, look, Living there in Philippi, you have the the obvious pagans. And there's a clear difference between you and them. You came out of that life. You came out of a world with with, uh, ritual prostitution. You came out of a world with multiple gods, where the gods are nothing more than big versions of people, with all of their failings and all of their character flaws. Who Paul's talking about here 
is a, is a group that theologians for a long time have called Judaizers. It's not a, a biblical term as such, but it's an accurate term. These are people who are Jews and who have put some sort of faith in what Jesus has done without, uh, without letting go of their Jewish identity. And now they're coming to Gentile Christians and they're saying to those Gentiles, you can't be a Christian until you become a Jew. And for you men, that means you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law. That's who Paul's talking about with these three terms. He calls them dogs. Uh, this was an insulting term that, that various groups used of one another, obviously. And Jews certainly used it of, of Gentiles. They, they used it of Gentiles because Gentiles were unclean. They did it because of the character and the nature that they saw in Gentiles. Dogs are, are, are not pets for the most part. People did have working dogs if they were shepherds, perhaps. But for the most part, in a town or in a city, dogs were feral. They were in packs. They wandered the streets at night. They were unclean. They were diseased. They would chase people down. They were a source of harm, and they were a source of fear. The true dogs, Paul says, are those who change the gospel of Jesus Christ and are substituting human tradition for biblical truth. And going back hundreds of years before Jesus, we see that God is offended by false religion. He says in Isaiah chapter 66, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. And their soul delights in their abominations. He's talking about people who are rigidly following the law, but rigidly following the law according to their own desires and their own traditions. They manage to follow the law and have nothing to do with the God who gave the law. And God says, I am utterly offended by that. Paul calls them evil workers. Now, if you listen to these men, they're, they're just faithful men, faithful Jews, trying to live according to the law of God and encourage others to follow the law of God. And, and we might be able to even commiserate with them. If they really believe that you as a Gentile, believing in Jesus, are going to hell because you have not met the requirements of the law, we would expect them to say there's a problem. But that's the human response. The biblical response is, Jesus fulfilled the commandments of the law. He lived that for us, and we died to the law in Christ. And because of that, the, the, the law no longer has force over us. Now, the moral law represents sin, and it represents what God finds offensive. And that's sin whether, whether we're Christians or not. But even then, we are not saved because we observe the moral law. We're certainly not saved because we observe the ceremonial law. The Judaizers and the Pharisees and the others had created traditions that were human traditions that had nothing to do with the law of God. And then they shoved the commandments of God out of the way and they elevated their traditions. Jesus said, you have a fine way of breaking the commandments of God in order to serve your own traditions. 
In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus pronounces judgment against the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter, who would enter, to go in. That's, that's exactly what is happening in Philippians. It's what happens in other books as well. You've got Gentiles who are hungry to know their Creator, hungry to know their God, and they've believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior, and they have trusted Him. And along come the Judaizers who will not trust in Jesus themselves and do everything that they can to deconvert others. He goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. So they go on mission trips. But when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You go reaching out to Gentiles to persuade them that they need to know their creator. And when they're broken by that and they realize they do need to know their creator, you take them in the exact opposite direction. And finally, Paul calls them those who mutilate the flesh. It's actually briefer than that in the original text He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the mutilators. The mutilator is is an ironic, sarcastic phrase. Because these men went around saying, circumcision is the, the sign of the covenant. And if you're not circumcised, you can have nothing to do with God. Paul argues against that in, in multiple books. They would say Gentiles need to receive the sign of circumcision in order to be part of the covenant. Paul would say you're doing nothing but maiming people by circumcising them. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, you don't mean anything to these people. They're they're just counting numbers. They're just focused on how many. How well are you doing? How many did you circumcise? And Paul says they're not doing circumcision at all. They are mutilating people. They are mutilating people. Of the various men that Paul had with him there there was a man named Titus we've got a letter of Paul to Titus and there was a man named Timothy we're told in the book of Acts that when Timothy began traveling with Paul he circumcised him he did that because Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jewish Timothy's father was a Gentile but Timothy's mother was Jewish Timothy had Jewish blood and in order to not give offense needlessly to the Jews Paul said to Timothy, you have a Jewish heritage that needs to be represented. But Titus was a Gentile, and we're told that Timothy or Paul did not compel Titus to be circumcised because that's the wrong message to send. On the other hand, Paul says in verse 3, we Christians are the circumcision. The true circumcision is the sense. As Christians, whether originally Jew 
or originally Gentile, those who have been born again in Christ, saved by the grace and the mercy of God through Jesus' death and resurrection, spiritually transformed. And then he describes what it means to be a Christian, what it means that we are the circumcision. And again, there's three points. We worship by the Spirit of God. The worship of Israel was was outward. It was based on rituals and forms and liturgies. It was tightly restricted to one place. It it was tightly controlled by a a specific people. The the form of worship in the Old Testament, you, you begin with with all of humanity potentially as you come to the the temple mount we've looked at this before so just to remind you as you have the temple mount you have a a very large area called the court of the gentiles and everybody can go there then there's a short wall two or three feet high with gaps in it called the soreg and gentiles couldn't go past that wall only jews could go past that wall jewish men and women they would they would wrap around to the east side however they came in, and then they would come into the, the court of women. And it's called the court of women because there was a, a gate there, the, the Lycanor gate, and women couldn't pass beyond that gate. Only, men, only Jewish men now can go into that gate, into what's called the court of Israel. And the men would go into that point to pray and to bring their offerings. And beyond the court of Israel was the court of the priests, and the men who are not Levites, could not go into the court of the priests. And the focus of the, the, uh, the, the Temple Mount is the tabernacle, this large building, 90 feet high, 90 feet long. And on the inside of the, the tabernacle, uh, in the, the opening of it, it's called the Holy Place. You have the, the, uh, the, the the, the menorah, you have the lampstand, you have the table of showbread, you have the altar of incense where Zechariah prayed in Luke chapter 1. And the only Levites, the only priests who could go in there were those chosen by Lot that day. And then toward the back of the holy place, or the holy place was the massive veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And the only person who could go through the veil into the Holy of Holies was the high priest one day a year. And so you can imagine this inverted triangle, right, where you begin with potentially everybody on the face of the earth. And when it comes down to actually going in before God, it's one person one day a year. It narrows down. What do you begin with in the gospel? You begin with every Chung tribe, nation, and kindred. Where does it narrow down? It, It narrows down one time faith in Jesus Christ, and, and it doesn't narrow beyond. It doesn't narrow beyond. And so we are those who worship by the Spirit of God. We are not locked into a specific time, into a specific place, into a specific priesthood. Christian worship is not something that takes place in a physical location, but in the realm of the Holy Spirit. That means within our own lives, within our own hearts. He makes us his temple. Our worship is godly because of that. It's pleasing to God no matter where we are because of that. When you entered this room this morning, you made it a cathedral. You made it a temple. You made it a tabernacle. You blessed it. I didn't bless it. We didn't go around and anoint the room with oil. We didn't do some kind of a superstitious thing. You brought in the presence of God. 
You sanctify this place by your presence. This place doesn't sanctify you. Jesus says in John chapter 4, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God. Second, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus. The Judaizers uh, and human religions of every sort glory in their own behavior and in their own righteousness. Uh, In those cases where they hang their heads and beat their chests over their sins, they then take pride in their humility. There was a point where Jesus told a story about a a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee, he approached and he held his head up high. And he said, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I'm not like the thieves and the robbers. I'm not like this tax collector. I pay tithes on everything that I do. And he went on to repeat all the things that he does. That's what human religion always does. It's always about me. It's always about my achievements. It's always about what I bring to the table. And especially how I compare to you. Two men are out hiking. They're moving through the woods and the hills. They come around the corner and they see a a huge sow grizzly with a couple of cubs. And the sow grizzly puts her head down and gets ready to charge. And one of the men sits down and rips off his hiking boots and puts on running shoes. And the other one says, you're nuts. You can't outrun that bear. He says, I just have to outrun you. Well, it's funny when you think about it. (laughs) That's human religion. I don't have to outrun God. I just have to outrun you. I just have to get out ahead of the negative pack. If I'm good enough, and good enough is always measured on a human curve, but we are not those who glory in the flesh. We glory in the Spirit of God. We glory, I'm sorry, in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who came. It's Jesus who lived a sinless life. It's Jesus who gave himself as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. It's Jesus who rose in victory. It's Jesus who rose in triumph. It's Jesus who reigns now and forever. The message of the church is never be part of us. The message of the church is always be reconciled to God. And being reconciled to God then you will be part of us. But you don't come to God through us. You you eventually are made part of us because of him. And third, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. The Judaizers work really hard and they put a lot of confidence in the flesh. And a lot of religious people do today. They rely in their circumcision and their baptism and their, their good works and their good deeds and their, and their social awareness. Earlier I spoke about Karl Barth. After a lifetime of study, he summarized his beliefs as Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. At this place, in a commentary on Philippians, Barth said that the Christian's boasting begins where ceremonial righteousness ceases at the point where we men in surrender to God's word of grace do nothing but believe. We come before God. We hear the message of the gospel. We hear the message of grace. 
and we do nothing but believe. We lift up empty hands and we say, I bring nothing except my sin and my need. And I believe in Jesus Christ. Next week we'll see how Paul specifically lived this out in terms of confidence in the flesh and giving that up. It's enough to say for the moment that we don't rely or trust in our own ability, but solely in what Jesus has done because he has done it all. As we bring this home, faith in Jesus Christ is not a matter of personal achievement. There's no reason for pride there. There's no reason to boast. We are unique as God's people. We are specially chosen as God's people, but we didn't make ourselves unique. We didn't choose ourselves. We have joy in Jesus because we've been rescued from our unclean lives. We have joy in Jesus because we've been forgiven from our, our dead works, our sinful works. We have joy in Jesus because we've been cleansed from dead religion. We have joy in Jesus because we worship in the spirit of God, not according to rules and regulations, but according to this new life that he has given us. We have joy in Jesus because we boast in what he has done, not in what we have done. He has done it all. And we have joy in Jesus because we don't trust in what we can do. We trust in what he has already done and accomplished. That's why we can rejoice in the midst of these agonizing circumstances, these terrible times that we face when we face insurmountable obstacles, whether they're, even when they're our own weakness, physical weakness, emotional weakness, uh, mental weakness, issues of sin. When those things dominate us, Jesus Christ is Lord. If we say, I can only have joy where I succeed, we'll never have joy. If we say, I'll only have joy to the extent that I'm righteous like Jesus, we'll never have joy. You're never going to be righteous like Jesus. The joy comes from surrendering to him and acknowledging that we need him so much. We have a Savior who is faithful. We have a King who is coming. We have a high priest who never, ever, ever, ever stops interceding for us. We have God the Spirit dwelling within us. We have a master who will keep us faithful even when we struggle. We have the hope of eternal love and peace with our God. And by the way, we have peace with our God because our God is at peace with us. He is at peace with us. He has declared an end of the warfare. He satisfied his wrath pouring it out on his own son. And so we can Rejoice in him. We can give him our praise. We can give him the glory for what he has done. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, teach us to rejoice in what Jesus has done, not in what we can do. Teach us to rejoice not just in spite of our weakness, but because of us, but because of it. To be like the Apostle Paul who says, I will boast in my weakness for when I am weak, I am made strong. To trust what you told Paul. That your grace is sufficient. Teach us the true kind of humility that doesn't try and 
prove how good we are and isn't worried about how bad we've been because you've done the work already. Teach us to live faithfully. Teach us to live obediently because of what we have in Jesus. Not to gain something because we already possess it if our faith is in you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for those who are not with us this morning and ask that you bless them and watch over them and assure them of your love. And in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.